This is Reimagine Law, a podcast about legal education and careers to help students navigate their career choices. Hello and welcome to Reimagine Law. It's lovely to have you listening in with us today as we cover a really important topic, the coroner's court. My name's Fran and it's my great pleasure to introduce today's guest, Nadia Pasord. Hi, Nadia. Hi, Fran. Welcome to the podcast. Um, So I don't know if we can get cracking with our first question for you today, but what is a coroner and what is a coroner's court? Because I think a lot of us have heard of these terms, but perhaps don't know the detail. Absolutely. A coroner is an independent judicial officer. The Ministry of Justice describe coroners as specialist type of judge. I suppose I would best describe a coroner as an inquisitorial judge, as we both direct the gathering of evidence and then we hear the evidence and legal submissions in court. You're absolutely right that lots of people don't know what coroners are and actually the number of people who have asked me about carrying out post-mortem examinations is (laughs) unreal because I think Mm -hmm. in the US coroners are pathologists and people still remember Quincy. In terms of the coroner's court, uh, the coroner's court is where inquests will be opened and inquests will be held. They are open to the public and inquests are formal court proceedings which are subject to contempt of court rules. Interesting. Um, You mentioned that point about inquisitorial earlier. Um, Mm -hmm. So just in case our listeners aren't, aren't fully aware of that term, that's where the judge has a a more investigative function rather than the adversarial system that perhaps we might see, for example, in the criminal courts where the parties bring the evidence and the judge is just deciding. Okay, Absolutely. So the parties don't direct the inquest. The coroner decides what evidence to call and the parties have roles as interested persons, but they don't direct the evidence and we're not arbitrating between two parties. We're all essentially working for the same purpose of establishing the facts surrounding the death. I'm fascinated to know why you chose to go into this um, this unique aspect of the legal profession. Well, I've always had an interest in things medical. Um, when I qualified as a lawyer, I completed a part-time master's degree in medical law and ethics, and I then specialised in medical negligence and medical law, I spent my final years of time in private practice as a partner in medical law, and 70% of my time was spent as an advocate in inquest hearings, and the other 30% dealing with healthcare-related judicial reviews, and also supporting doctors with difficult legal and ethical decisions. So that's where my interest for the coroner's court came. From 2013, all newly appointed coroners have to be lawyers. So prior to that, coroners could be doctors or lawyers. Now, many coroners have a very similar background to me in medical law, but there are lots of coroners now who have practiced in criminal law and all sorts of other types of law as well. It's a really good example, actually, of how there's an aspect of law for everybody's interest. I often think this, you know, people with um, different experiences as well and where they can channel their careers and and go forward. Yeah. Okay. so um, perhaps you could give our listeners a a flavour or an idea of what an average day, if one exists, of course, um, (laughs) might be for you in your role as a coroner. 
Okay, so the average day starts with getting into the office and checking whether there have been any new deaths referred overnight. We then decide whether we can perhaps support a doctor in registering a death. So if a death's been reported to us where it looks to be natural, there are no suspicious circumstances, the family have no concerns, but the deceased hadn't been seen by their doctor for some time, the doctor will need support in registering that death. Otherwise, if a death's reported and there are suspicious circumstances or the cause of death is unknown, we will instruct a pathologist to carry out a post-mortem examination. There might be requests waiting for a person to be taken out of England, so a deceased person to be taken out of England, and I would have to ensure that there are no reasons for a coronial investigation to be opened before I confirm that I have no objection to the body leaving England. Then at nine o'clock, we may open inquests. So this has to take place in court. We have to publicise it and the press and the public can attend if they want to. Openings take place as soon as reasonably practicable, where we have a reason to suspect that the circumstances requiring an inquest are met. So those circumstances are that the deceased died of violent or unnatural cause of death, that the cause of death is unknown, or they died in state detention. The inquest opening itself, each individual case only takes around five minutes. It formally opens the court process, so the proceedings are now active for contempt of court purposes. We set directions for gathering evidence. So we say to the coroner's officers, this is what you need to obtain in terms of witnesses and documents and CCTV, etc. We identify the likely interested persons and then we set a provisional inquest date. And once the openings are done, we'll then prepare for the inquest hearings, which usually begin at around 10 a.m. And we sit until around 4.30 p.m. And then in lunchtime and any breaks, we have to go back to our case management system to see are there any new cases or forms for us to consider. We may have to release bodies back to families. Sometimes there is urgency for religious or cultural reasons or for any other reason. And that's why we have to constantly check during breaks whether we need to sign release forms. And also if there is a coronial investigation, then we will sign the cremation or burial papers so that's sort of the average day <laughs> wow <laughs> I mean we all know that uh, the legal profession days are, are are long but really that feels in the context of a lot of the judicial roles that I've heard about as as a particularly uh, busy day especially with this pressure the time pressure that perhaps doesn't always exist in other roles yes yes that's that's very true um now you mentioned there about um them being available for the public and, and the press um, is it a really important feature then of the coroner's court that they, there is that public element? Yes, absolutely. Open justice is one of the fundamental um, principles that we have to abide by. So all of our openings, all of our inquests have to be posted in good time for the public or press to be able to attend all of the hearings. But But open justice is really important. Yeah, we've seen that in quite a few of the areas of law we've talked about on the podcast that deal with with people, and mm-hmm. and really this is this this area feels like the backbone of a civil society to have 
a proper investigation when there yeah. has been a death in unusual circumstances. Absolutely, yes. Um, brilliant. And one other little question I had um, for you. You mentioned interested parties and, and being there for the families. Mm-hmm. Um, can families that, that find themselves involved in coroner's proceedings um, get get funding? Is there legal aid available or do they always have to sort of privately fund being there? Okay, this is a quite a tricky area, a controversial area where because it's an inquisitorial process, families don't automatically get legal aid funding. There is the concept of exceptional funding for inquests and if there are exceptional circumstances, so if it's a death in custody, if there is a jury, if Article 2 is engaged, if it's a more complex inquest then a family may get funding but for most cases it's not available personally I would like to see funding for families because if we have an inquest which has other interested persons such as you know hospital trusts ambulance services local authorities they will always tend to have legal representation so in an ideal world what I would like to see is if there's not going to be legal aid I would like to see those state organisations, if they're funding lawyers, having a pot to assist families involved in an inquest where the state care is called into question um, to have that legal backing. But that's not there at the moment, but they can get exceptional funding. Thank you. Yeah, that's really interesting. And if anyone's interested to know more about legal aid, we do have an episode specifically on legal aid. Although I have to confess, we didn't cover this topic when we were looking at it. We were more <laughs> looking at, at your general civil and, and, and criminal cases. Yeah. All right. Um, so I, I wonder if you could give us a flavour about the types of cases and the different conclusions that, that you're able to give as a coroner. OK, so the purpose of an inquest really is to seek out and record as many facts surrounding that particular death as the public interest requires. There are four questions that we have to determine during the course of the inquest, and that's who was the deceased? How, where and when did they come by their death? We might write a preventing future deaths report if the evidence gives rise to concern that similar future deaths will occur. So in terms of the types of cases and conclusions, accidents, um, we will look into falls and, and we have a number, sadly, of elderly Um, patients who suffer a fall, could be at home or hospital or a care home, sustain a head injury and that that leads to their death. Industrial accidents or accidents in the workplace, road traffic collisions, suicide cases. So we will have to look into the question of did the deceased take the action that led to their death and did they intend to bring about their death? Sometimes those cases will involve a look at the care provided to them, particularly the mental health care, and we'd have to look at did any aspects of the care contribute to their death. In those sorts of cases, a conclusion should could be a short form conclusion of suicide, or it could be a narrative conclusion if the care contributed to death. A narrative is a brief, factual, neutral conclusion that will take into account any contributory factors And if we find that actually the deceased did take the action that led to their death, for example, an overdose, but there was no evidence of intention, then the conclusion there could be accident or misadventure. Other types of cases um, that can be quite complex are hospital death cases where there are concerns 
that a lack of care contributed to a death. If a lack of care did contribute, then you're likely to reach a narrative conclusion recording the aspect of the care that contributed. If the inquest actually shows that the care didn't contribute, then the conclusion may be natural causes. And if there's a serious failure to provide care, then there could be a rider of neglect. Neglect is a gross failure to provide basic medical attention to someone who's in a dependent position where that gross failure has a clear and direct causal connection to the death. And then finally, um, in terms of the complex cases that we deal with, these are usually those where the deceased died from unnatural causes in state detention. Now, we don't have a prison in East London, so the cases for us will usually involve a death in police custody or where someone is detained under the Mental Health Act. Now, families are likely to get legal aid funding for these cases. The inquests will be heard with a jury. There will often be a number of interested persons. There may be a number of independent experts, lots of legal issues to deal with. And in these cases, the jury reaches the factual conclusion, but the coroner has to direct the jury on the law. And also the coroner is responsible for preventing future deaths. So writing a report if necessary. Wow, I am um, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, none, none of what you're saying is a surprise. When you think about life, these things um, need to be considered and there needs to be processes. But I had not thought about it in the context of a career and a job and, and, and mm. a legal process that happens, because it feels quite separate from the legal system that, that yes. certainly I interact with. Um, so I was just wondering about how the work of the coroner sits alongside any potential criminal investigations, if, if there are any. Can they happen at the same time or? No. So what happens is if a death is a violent death, it will be reported to the coroner. The coroner then opens an inquest because that criteria of violent death is met. But we will then adjourn the inquest proceedings, open and adjourn it for the police investigation to take place. If the police bring charges and there's going to be a Crown Court hearing, we will then formally suspend the inquest proceedings until the outcome of the Crown Court trial. It may be that we then don't resume the inquest if everything has been considered in the Crown Court. But if there are aspects of um, the death, for example, if there's um, a failure to provide care, so someone sustains an injury through a criminal act, goes into hospital and potentially could have been saved in hospital, we may open an inquest after a Crown Court trial to look into the aspect of care that contributed to death. But we would never have an inquest rolling at the same time as Crown Court proceedings. They will take precedence. Fascinating. I often talk with my students about the different layers of law and how you don't get sort of a neatly packaged family law problem or landlord mm. and tenant problem in, in real life, you know, and I think this is a, a really clever example of you mentioned medical negligence earlier, how things interact with crime. You know, yeah. It's fascinating. The last question that I, I was interested to know about Nadia from you is um, what do you find fulfilling about your role? I mean, I can imagine there's a lot, but I'm really interested to hear what, <laughs> what it is. I, mean, I love being a coroner. I've been attending inquest hearings since 
Oh, the 1990s. So obviously I was very young when I started. Um, I've never become bored with the work. As a lawyer, I just love being in court rather than being in an office. I've always liked that. And every single case is different. The cases are human, emotional, and they have meaning. The public interest side is fulfilling. So if you see change for the good following a preventing future death report, that's fulfilling. But I suppose the greatest fulfillment comes from families after an inquest hearing, when they feel that they've been listened to and that they have received answers to questions that they had surrounding the death of their loved one. And, and that's the key point, isn't it? I think when you're working with um, really heavy going um, factual situations that are regularly, I imagine, very difficult to hear and be involved in, you've got to keep that end goal yeah, in mind. Absolutely. Wonderful. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Um, one of the things that we do on our podcast is we like to leave our listeners with um, some practical actions that they can take away, that they can do around the coroner's court. Um, and I was wondering whether you had any uh, thoughts about things that, that people who are interested in this area of law could do on their own after listening to this episode. So I suppose that if, if you're interested, that the best overview of the coroner's work, I think, is set out in the Ministry of Justice's guidance for the bereaved. It covers everything from you know, instructing post-mortems right the way through to an inquest. It's a really easy and quick read. And the other thing is inquests are open proceedings. And so if you are interested in this type of work, you can look on the website of your local coroner's court or speak to the reception staff to know what inquests are coming up. And they can often tell you that the type of inquest and you can go along and observe. So I think those are probably the two takeaway points that I would give. Fantastic. And we'll put the link to that document in the show notes. So if anyone does want to have a look um, at the Ministry of Justice document, and we regularly say to listeners to go to court and watch. So this is another <laughs> example. Um, and it's great to know that they can just um, have a look online or, or turn up and speak to somebody yeah. um, and then sit in the public gallery. Well, uh, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Um, and just a reminder to our listeners as well that you can follow us on social media. We have a LinkedIn and Instagram um, page um, and tune in next time as we start to look at other areas of law. Thanks for listening. Thank you.